Content warning. This episode contains graphic descriptions of brutality and mentions of rape and suicide. Inka-Congo, one of the oldest languages spoken by the people living in what the West now calls the Democratic Republic of Congo, there is a word that speaks of the sea. Kalunga doesn't directly refer to the great stretch of water. In fact, it means the threshold between worlds. But over time, the meaning of the word has become warped and has given birth to a phrase which roughly translates as the Kalunga line. The Kalunga line separates the land of the living from the dead. The Congo people believe that after death, the soul traversed this line by traveling the path of the sun as it set in the west. And when their people began to be stolen in shackles, packed onto boats and taken away over the water, the meaning of the Kalunga line shifted to refer to an invisible boundary under the Atlantic Ocean. Once the Kalunga line was crossed, and the Congo people went from human beings with names and a past to the enslaved, they believed they had gone from the living to the dead. The only way back to the world of the living was to recross the line. But of the roughly 12 million Africans who undertook the Middle Passage, a figure equivalent to the population of Mumbai, very few ever made it back across the Kalunga line. I'm Moya Lothian McLean, a journalist on the journey to discover the truth about Britain's slaving history. This is Human Resources. For many, the journey of the Middle Passage is one of the most evocative images of slavery taught in schools as an example of the brutality of the trade. It was the sea voyage of no return, that took millions of Africans from the so-called slave coast to their new existence, as the property of planters and merchants in the Americas, West Indies and other European colonies. The Middle Passage was essential to the process of dehumanisation that turned people into slaves. But how did it develop? And what impact did the journey have on everything from British naval power to the manner in which the sea is governed today. My name is Shawande Mustakin, and I'm an associate professor of history and African and African-American studies at Washington University in St. Louis. And I study many things, but what I have now become globally known for is my two-time award-winning book, Slavery at Sea, Terror, Sex, and Sickness in the Middle Passage. In short, I study the Middle Passage, Speaking with Sawande, it made sense to start by trying to understand the unvarnished truth of what the Middle Passage was. What, for example, would it be like undertaking that horrific journey for a young woman my age? I often found myself at the turn of the 20th century having to say to students, a slave ship is not a cruise ship. That right there shuts down the majority of memory. Well, then what do you mean? Hey, 
There's no lights. There's no special food. There's no entertainment. It is exactly opposite. With that, the way in which I define the Middle Passage and the slave ship experience essentially is taking a panoramic view, going from the point of capture to the point of sale. So we could have a woman who is going out into a river to go bathe one Saturday morning. And then all of a sudden there's a group of five men that come and knock her down, beat her up. And because she refused, she in fact is raped before they even then transport her further into the interior land, but then to the coast. So then all of a sudden she finds herself on a shore with all of these different types of people, men, women, children, elderly, even infants that are coming from many places. But then it is, so she's placed aboard a ship. Let's just say she's not sold because then she has to be essentially almost auctioned. There's an auction block, not just within the Americas, but there's the first iteration of an auction block that would happen on the African coast. And this is where the coming of essentially these white strangers, but people from all over the world that are coming, the movement of ships and docking into these ports meant, hey, do you want to come over on my ship and have a drink tonight? Before this woman has even left the African coast, a process of dehumanisation is taking place if she's being auctioned. What would happen then? when she's actually on the journey to her first destination, would all the African people travelling on that ship have the same experience? Let's say that she ends up on a contaminated ship, then all of a sudden she has smallpox. Then we're getting a completely different narrative of a perfect body. She was bought or moved around and entered into the sale a certain way. So what I'm doing is introducing this whole notion of the perfect, healthy bodies, which really did not exist within this world of slavery and even more slavery at sea. But then she sold, a a slave ship captain sees the value in her and the passage itself would mean that she and all the many others aboard a ship would be stowed away in different parts of the ship. Most of all, it is about keeping men from the women. And so women and children will be stowed away in a separate part of the ship, but that's not always, it will depend on the ship itself. And a lot of that is going back to the constant fear of rebellion, but even more the fear of black men. That doesn't mean that there isn't a fear of black females. We just kind of forget that females and children are on ships because we've created this idea and the images themselves leave us with perhaps these adult muscled black men as the only ones who are sold into the trade and across the Americas. What could happen to someone found to be sick during the Middle Passage? Perhaps three weeks into the passage, all of a sudden this woman exhibits beginning pustules on her body, that small bumps are emerging, that she's getting a fever. So then that forces the ship to then have to quarantine if someone happened to notice. Now, not every ship had a surgeon. The British were the only ones to require a slave ship surgeon. The Americans did not, there was no need. Because again, we're thinking about the disposability of black people. You lose that one, you can go and get more. But at the same time, to have a surgeon, a slave ship surgeon would allow for a different lens. So even if you didn't have that, let's just say the seamen aboard the ship, they didn't quite know how to handle smallpox. But now I want to speak into an example that you have a black woman that I've uncovered in 1791 who 
ended up with smallpox while aboard a slave ship. And as a result of it, she is quarantined, placed in a different part of the ship where they give her an old blanket to heave over herself, some food, just a little bit of food. And then there is a ship meeting that happens with the seamen themselves and the ship captain determined that she had to go because he was afraid that she was going to contaminate the rest of the ship. So he ordered another sailor to go up with him and he strapped her to a chair, tied a mask around her eyes and her mouth. And then the two of them lowered her to four other awaiting sailors who then left her for dead in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Now, because of what he did, then they were able to go on, finish the rest of the journey, and then all of those who were on board the ship were able to be sold. That particular case is one example of flickers of memory that we have and we don't have. We still are nowhere in our deeper understanding of the experience of Black females. And I'm being very clear about that because we tend to cast young girls as women. When we say women and men, then we're basically saying children did not exist. We're saying that elderly did not exist, and they did. They found themselves on these ships. Babies were born on ships. Women had abortions, miscarriages happened. Now an average voyage length could really, of course it's gonna depend on the final destination, which there really is no such thing within the Middle Passage because some people wouldn't be sold at that port. So you could be on a, a passage itself for perhaps two to three months, but it also could end up being eight, nine, or even a year. It would depend how long a ship is docked into these different places. So the journey, fundamentally is horrific, it's bloody, and it is not as action-packed as Hollywood would have us believe, but that does mean that resistance would come in many forms, slave ship rebellions, that no, they did not happen every minute. I want to understand the forms that rebellion could take on slave ships beyond traditional uprisings. Even on some ships, you would see the taking of one's life, so that could come in many forms jumping overboard, even hanging yourself. There's also the belief that some enslaved people, because of the shock of enslavement, would end up swallowing their tongues in order to try to take their own lives. The mistreatment during the Middle Passage, the brutality, that's a pretty obvious form of psychological conditioning. I wanted to ask Sawande what role that conditioning at sea plays in the wider psychology of slavery. The conditioning is central. The conditioning, we need to make better meaning of it, to take more serious. Because the conditioning is not just the iconic images that we're seeing of whipped black bodies, oftentimes really more black men. Conditioning is, first of all, being withheld from any type of treatment or care. Forget the word care. There's no such thing within the world of slavery itself. It's completely opposite. So the conditioning itself is to keep these high numbers of black people in constant fear, uncertainty. Let them not know where they are, where they're going. So that way we're preventing any alliances and connections that would then lead to rebellion, overthrow. But the biggest and the greatest conditioning is 
the movement and the violent movement of Black people to essentially extract them from their homeland, their whole culture, all of how they know themselves or a whole world, and then to do what I argue is the making and the unmaking of enslaved people. So we're unmaking freedom. We're gonna remind you that you no longer are free, you do not have control over your life, but then you are made essentially in the violent images of the moment. So everyone is having a hand, it's very ritualized, where within this trade, the entire process itself is to essentially to extend what came from transport and delivery of these various things. But the whole shipboard experience would then be necessary in the violent making that then would go to the delivery itself. So at that point, then you have people broken down who then will not rebel, who will not go back to demanding for freedom. It's clear already that the role of the sea as a liminal space at this time, free from the laws of the land, is key to shaping the experience of the Middle Passage. People got to do exactly what they wanted because every ship was its own city. It is governed by the people that are within it. Sure, there's laws on land, but who's going to see how things are playing out literally at sea? So the ship captains and the seamen, they then would make the rules. So it is very much, some could argue lawless, but it is law made within the ship itself. We would think now in the modern era that land-based laws would have full effect on the shipboard experience, but when you're out there for months, there's no cameras. There's, the technology is not evolved in that way. And so the laws and the ways of being are really dictated by the merchants, by the brokers themselves that are telling these seamen and sailors how to be, how to treat people and also really moving along manufactured ideas and stereotypes of Black people. So it is very much what would be perceived as lawless, but again, contained within that very horrific and bloody world of slave ships. It is made by those who are essentially moving the ships across the Atlantic Ocean. What's known about the reactions of the seamen and ships' crews to the inhumane trade they were taking part in? We talk about the banality of evil a lot nowadays, but it always seems so confounding to me that people who have come that close to the slave trade and still actively aid its inaction. Well, the first thing to think about is you have a variety of different types of slave traders. So everyone was not literate. Everyone could not write or read. Some were happy to have a job. So you have letters that are written by surgeons and people who were employed on ships that would talk about what was happening on ships. You have letters from ship captains, but you also have the expectation of better treatment. Surgeons expecting to be treated almost in royalty on a ship. So in that way, there's many ideas, many worlds that are converging within a slave ship itself. Do we have many accounts of ship captains that all of a sudden felt guilty in the middle of the trade? Absolutely not. What we do have is a reckoning, and John Newton would be a perfect example, that he would come to his own understanding after already being on many voyages, making the money that then all of a sudden you found God and you've really atoned and you're really beginning to reckon with the past, but that's coming later. We don't have that in the middle of a slaving voyage. Now we do have, going back to the story that I had mentioned from 1791, which is actually an American 
slave ship story, the Rhode Island ship Polly, within the conversation that was held with the ship captain and the sailors, the ship captain actually asked and was asking what they thought about it, but he was very clear what was going to happen. So you did have some sailors who expressed the opposite of what he wanted. They were in disagreement because his big thing was that she had to go. So we do have evidence of it. We just don't have the evidence that I think in our more contemporary world that we would assume we would expect and we would hope for, because this is very disturbing, even more centuries removed that we can't imagine. So far in human resources, we've uncovered very strong links between the development of the slave trade and parallel leaps in things like science, financial instruments, and so on. Was this true of the Middle Passage and shipping as well? So the technology question is interesting because the way in which we imagine technology now is so far literally out in space. And this centuries ago was considered advanced technology that was advancing. Now there is a turning point that is important that comes up in the 18th century that changes, but it's all still political, which is looking at the addition of ventilators aboard slave ships. So that really did not come until the mid 18th century. And this is being accredited to a scientist, I believe his name is Hale, but there were ship captains that were writing him letters to thank them for essentially being able to keep alive more of their enslaved people, but it also was about keeping alive the workers on these ships. So then only come mere decades before the full skyrocketing of the need for conversations and of course the the testimonies before the British House of Commons, House of Lords, all of it that would come, but this would come just merely a few decades. So it would be centuries. You wouldn't have ventilators aboard slave ships, but technology had to, and it would always advance because of new generations bringing new needs in the supplying of Black bodies across plantations and also these societies with enslaved people and slave societies. The Hales Sawande mentioned is Stephen Hales, who we spoke about during our first season of Human Resources in episode two, The Tree of Life, with Professor Kate Murphy. Stephen Hales is known for trying to engineer a healthier slave ship by improving air circulation. This then led to, as Sawande said, captains writing him thank you letters. Thinking about how slave ships were advancing, I wondered whether there were specific stories from the Middle Passage that show how these broader new technologies, like the invention of insurance, further entrenched Black Africans as commodities. So with the Zong, essentially you have a slave ship that the original captain ended up dying, the slave ship surgeon ended up becoming the ship captain. Somehow he was aware of a clause within the insurance policy that essentially was saying, if you have to throw over some, that you would be compensated. So... Luke Collingwood, he had sailors go and determine who was sickly, who was basically less than valuable. And for a period of three days, he ordered the overthrow of an estimated, I believe, 133 people that were thrown overboard. And once the ship was docked and they sold everyone, then we have what's playing out in the courts, a battle between Collingwood and the insurance company itself. So who should be compensated? And then that would give rise to a response within the British public of, hold on, looking at their own selves involved in 
this history of slavery would bring to the forefront its deeper meaning. Now, symbolically, it's even more important because this is right before all the testimony from the various people who were involved in the trade itself before, again, the British House of Commons and House of Lords. But it is globally how the British look through this. But yet it is, of course, the large number of loss of life. We can't really argue on one way or not whether there was a lot of this, and that's going to go back to the reporting. That will then depend on the century itself. Was it during the legal slave trading era or is it during the illegal? But the Zong itself would give rise globally. It would now give the world a case to really begin to see the horrors of the trade and then yet how out within the middle of the ocean the attempt to hide the horrors, and then to be benefited from it. So all of this is a part of essentially the building of racial capitalism, and then yet also giving rise to a new history of abolitionism and really thinking about where do you go as a nation that no longer wants to be involved in the slave trade. So this would pre-shadow many years of debate between both nations as within America and among the British that would be about what does this mean? What does it mean for us? What can we learn from the idea that by ensuring people, it became more profitable for slave ship runners to kill 130 enslaved Africans rather than keep them alive? And what does that show about the sea and the sort of decisions that were made at sea and the mentality that went into them? It really shows that the land was shaping sea-born practices. There is a constant influence on each other, but within the realm of money, that's gonna have the greatest influence on the everyday behavior. So more concretely, within the jettison clause, to be able to then throw overboard, that then is, that's endorsing violence. So when we pull back, what is this saying? What does it mean? It means that we've got to really look at what have been the investments in blood and the loss of life and the disregard we could be pointing to healthcare systems. We could be pointing to the investment in guns. We could be pointing in a lot of different directions that should make us really take serious about within the insurance and then yet what it was set into motion. Again, full economy of violence. It's okay. Hey, you can make some money off of this. But then how a world would continue to give money while also just endorsing it within that world and its continuation. So it's the sanctioning that is happening all over, but it is important when we begin to look at who is benefiting off the loss of Black life over and over. And then we haven't even talked about then the benefit that's coming within the living and the dead to essentially be within that industry, whether as a physician and especially that, because that's what we're seeing in the beginning. And that's a whole other industry, especially within Liverpool, you have all of these physicians, all of these different people that would pay to become certified as surgeons within the African slave trade. That would become a full other source of money within the medical world, just within Liverpool. So a lot of this, it is about the investment, the money, and then also the marketing of essentially almost a whole other version of white privilege and white power over black bodies. How do stories like that of the Zong emerge? Have we got any idea about how many similar narratives might not have been told? Who passes these on? I don't know, because when I learned later on, for me, it was when I look at how I learned, it was through scholars. It was through 
understanding the historiography. So I'm actually more curious about how it's taught, if it's even taught within England, because we don't know anything about the Middle Passage. We don't have the icons. We have Harriet Tubman, but nothing within the slave trade itself. And that was what made people say to me, we don't have anything on that. There's no history of the slave trade. So I can't answer that. I don't know how it actually came to be. That's such an interesting point. I can reference the Harriet Tubmans and the Olada Equianos, but the narrative of slavery focuses so much on the Southern plantation experience. Why the gravitation towards the American experience? It is easier to demonize the Southern phenomena and all of its so-called perceived evils. It's easy prey. It's where we've gone and where we know, because then to ask the question of Granada, to ask the question of Jamaica would then have to go to, what do we even know about it? What do we know about that history and its connection? So again, what I look to, because also I teach film, is where are the filmmakers? We can't just have one and two in certain areas and then they do it all. We've got to train a future that is more informed on the various legacies that connect us as a globe and maybe really learn about the slave trade and then also thinking about slavery and its making within the world. Why do we still know less about slavery in Brazil or slavery within, again, Central America or all over the globe itself or even thinking about the Black experience in Australia? We're still just not where we believe that we're further in it. We have good intentions, but we still have to go further and recognize that a lot of this is hidden in plain sight. It is not hidden. It's just that we gravitate to what makes us feel better, when we find ourselves less uncomfortable. We got to restart and we got to think about how do you tell the future in a new and concrete, intentional way about the many various contours of the past. It's interesting thinking about that because something like the Titanic is constantly memorialized in museums, our culture, archaeology. There's voyages to go and try and find bits of it physically and those who perished on it. The tragedy of the Titanic is always, always contextualized in the sea. But when it comes to the slave trade and the enslaved whose bones rest on the seabed and the middle passage, it's just silence. That was a perfect analogy. Hollywood did a great job. We just somehow, oh, not we, but yet, we romanticize a tragedy like that in such a way that the slave trade, you can't. You just can't. And in fact, I argue about that when we're really thinking about memory of the slave trade or even slavery, the slave trade is the worst of the worst of the worst. It's almost like we just want to lock it away, just forget it happened. But hey, we do want to talk about that fiddler on that plantation or that big mama, she sure could cook for us. We want to remember those aspects of slavery. But because there are no happy stories aboard slave ships. I argue that the slave trade represents the Frankenstein of slavery. It is the monster that was created by the stitching together of the dead, the living, and it's an abominable monster, a creature that's created that no one wants. There's nothing to be celebrated about it. So in that way, we try to lock it away and then we try to find some good happy stories maybe as the coming of freedom is happening within slavery, but the slave trade is too bloody, too horrific, happy to move beyond it. I can't, can't tell you enough how many people, they're disturbed over and over where they're like, 
Why do we have to talk about this? Can't we just get over it? One other thing, what I tried to do with the book, even on the level of art, was to encourage a future understanding of the horrors that lie within the water. So that essentially was overturning or pushing back against the iconic images that we use to tell the history and the history so that for the first time people are confronted with bloody water. So then you can make better meaning of the horrors and the terror and violence that was detonated out within the Atlantic Ocean. So when we begin to reckon with that, confront it, let's go there. Then we will begin to open up whole new doorways that we all as a world can begin to find greater compassion on what we did to one another in the evolution of history and history. The sea represents so much to so many. It can be an opportunity, an adventure, life bringer, life taker. But for those who were forced to sail across the Atlantic Ocean and the Kalunga Line, the sea represents lost histories, their past washed away by the cold, inky depths below. The question of how we recover and rebuild those stories still looms large. So in the next episode in two weeks, I'm going right back to the beginning of the story of slavery to understand the world that birthed it into being. Human Resources was written by me, Moya Lothian-McLean. Our editor and producer is Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Dr. Alison Bennett and Arisa Lumber. Production assistant is Rory Boyle. Sound design by Lex Adamora. Social assets by Forward Slash. This episode featured music from Slaver at Sea, the book soundtrack, a unique scholarly musical project envisioned by our guest on this episode, Sawande Mustakim. This is a Broccoli production. <laughs>